last week, last week we finished up our part two of really the humility and the exaltation of Jesus based on his obedience and humility, following God's will, and coming here and dying the way he did. God gave him, he exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, and a name that describes his holiness, his dominion, uh, his sovereignty over everything. And then last week we read through Revelations chapter 5 and the worthiness of God and how he is the only one that could be the perfect mediator between us and God uh, because he was fully man and fully God. And I played that video, that awesome video, and I tried to make it a part of what we put on there and YouTube flagged it, so I had to take it down. Um, I got to figure it out. I'm like, there's so much stuff out there. How did it get flagged? So they wouldn't let me put it on. But that awesome video that is he worthy? Um, because in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it doesn't matter what you've done with him here on earth. In that day, you will not be able to deny that he is Lord. And that day is coming. Uh, then we talk about a very practical verse in working out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? We don't work for our salvation. We don't work on our salvation, but we work out our salvation. We, um, what we say, we put feet to our faith. Uh, and that's where our good buddy James would say, I'll take it from here. James, putting feet to our faith. I'll show you my faith by my works is what he would say. Um, it has to move from our heads to our hearts and then ultimately out to our hands and feet or it's not going to be um, what it could be and blessed as it could be. Um, this world is more than willing to let us coast down the lazy river of life. It's more than willing to let us get in the flow and just you know let it go where it takes us. But the problem is, is it's not a lazy river, it's not a circle, it's actually headed for a waterfall. And um, we know that. We've all seen the movie, we've all seen the visual where somebody's going down the river and it pans back and you can see the waterfall, but the person can't see it. They don't know that they're headed for a dead end. And we see the waterfall, but so many people are cruising along through life right now just trying to enjoy the ride. Uh, and too many Christians really live with a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry, but we know that we're going to heaven. We know where we're headed. And sometimes we are the ones that lose our joy in the midst of difficult circumstances when we're the ones that should be holding on to joy and holding up that joy for the world to see because we know where we're headed. Uh, Luke 10, that's interesting because Jesus sends out the 70 and he sends them out. And it's interesting because he said, I'm sending you out to proclaim that the kingdom is here. And it says that those were places that he was actually going to go. But he sends them out first as his representatives to be the heralds, to be the ones that proclaim that the kingdom is coming. And they come back and they're all just super excited because he said, you know, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus has said, you know, that's awesome, guys. But actually, you know, what's better that you should rejoice in is that your names are written in the book of life. Like that's the thing that you should be rejoicing in. And because God has revealed that to us, because he has revealed himself to us, we can rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We know where we're headed. So what is our job as believers who have the perspective of eternity? Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we work out our salvation 
we put on our spiritual gym shorts, right? We work it out. We put that into practice so we can be God's representatives here on earth. We glow in the dark is what I call this one. We glow in the dark. That last verse from last week, verse 13, says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work it out. And it gets worked in. And then God gives us the ability to live it out every single day. So turn with me if you have your Bibles. Uh, we'll put it up here on the screen to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to do verses 14 through 18 today. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in that day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Uh, I'll be honest, sometimes these messages come together. They're very encouraging and they're very, you know, I'm excited to preach them. I'm excited to preach them all the time. But sometimes they come together very easily and they're encouraging. Today, uh, today's message is kind of a spiritual kick in the pants. Uh, it's really kind of a gut check, an opportunity to hold up the mirror and be honest about how we're living in this, in this world, in this generation, and um, the actions that we're taking. Because the stakes are high. The stakes are high. What people see in our lives, the stakes are high. The waterfall is real. The real people headed for a real hell. So we live in a very dark I think that's, I don't have to convince you of that. And so in light of that, in light of the fact, literally, that we live in such a dark time, what kinds of attitudes, what kind of actions are we displaying as believers of Christ to a world that's living in darkness? We live in the most prosperous culture on earth, maybe even the most prosperous culture of all time. Um, and yet, so many people, even some Christians, are very unsatisfied with life. Why is that? We are so discontent or unhappy with our lot in life. Uh, we love movies, we love entertainment and books, media, but all too often those things, and I enjoy them too, but sometimes those things leave us feeling very empty because we have bought into the lie that our happiness is the supreme objective in life. And when we buy into that lie that my happiness is the supreme objective, we're going to be unsatisfied. Even in relationships, even in marriage, right? Our personal happiness is not the supreme objective. It's to glorify God in everything that we do, even in our relationships. And there's a correlation it, throughout history of cultures and peoples that had put an infatuation with entertainment and how much gratification they got out of life. Because the more we focus on entertainment, like all culture, all culture today, the less we enjoy our lives, the less satisfaction there is. And so we see a country, we see a world that is sinking into self-indulgence and materialism. And when we see discontent start to set in, uh, it breeds impatience, right? When we get discontent, it breeds impatience, it breeds lust, it breeds, um, I have to have it now. That's what lust is. Um, it's not just sexual lust, it's also, you know, material like this. I have to have this thing now. And I would say that that characterizes our culture right now. That's pretty easy to say. Uh, 
Experts say, I'm in the advertising world, and experts say that you and I are exposed to somewhere between, this is a big range, between 6,000 and 10,000 ads a day. A day. Let's just take the low end. 6,000 ads a day competing for your attention, trying to convince you that you're not satisfied with life. That you could have something else that would complete your life and make it better. Paul's going to tell us at the end of this book that he had learned in whatever situation to be content. It doesn't matter what I'm going through. It doesn't matter in my current circumstances. I have learned to be content. And that is a learned behavior is what he tells us. It's not something that comes naturally. It's something we have to learn because it goes so much against our flesh. And you and I will miss contentment if keeping rather than releasing becomes our objective. That becomes our focus. If keeping rather than releasing becomes our focus, we are going to miss contentment. Uh, we too often uh, love things and use people way too often when really we should be loving people and just you know using things. And so when objects become our focus, we miss contentment. We are most content when we are grateful for what we own, when we're satisfied with what we make, and we're generous with those in need. When we're grateful and when we're satisfied and when we're generous. Those things in our life, when we do those intentionally, then we can have contentment. Those are keys that will steer us away from complaining. From complaining. Uh, do all things without complaining and disputing. Alicia and I uh, just celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary last week. Uh, 24 years. And so what we did, we did it overnight at a place, at bed and breakfast up in St. Joe. And if you're wondering, St. Joe hasn't changed at all. <laughs> if you haven't been up there in a while, it hasn't changed at all. But the place that we stayed was really cool. It was called like Shakespeare Chateau or something. It was a really cool house. I love old houses. It was built like in the 1890s. Uh, very neat. The whole thing was themed around Shakespeare. Hey, guys. Matt is at 11 o'clock. You can watch it on Channel 2. Channel 2, you can see. Last week we had fire alarms. Okay, there was no way to edit that out of the video. People who watched the video, you got three fire alarms. That was awesome. But this whole place was themed around Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote a play called Henry VI. And in it, the king says, he says, My crown is in my heart, not on my head. It's the crown of contentment. A crown that few kings actually enjoy. Contentment. When we can't find contentment, we start to complain. That becomes our mode. Um, complaining is kind of a pet peeve of mine, and I do it too, but it's kind of a pet peeve. And I tell my kids from time to time, I said, listen, complaining is a lot like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you never get anywhere. <laughs> so let's stop complaining and be grateful for the things that we have. Uh, Paul says, do all things without complaining and disputing. So after talking about all the things that Jesus has done for us, coming here, going through a humiliation, and then being exalted... We need to check our attitudes and our actions. How are we living? And chapter 1 was all about having a single mind, being single-minded in our purpose and our way that we live for God. And then number 2, chapter number 2 is dealing with a submitted mind. And a submitted mind, if we're submitted to Christ, isn't going to complain, isn't going to murmur. Uh, that word that Paul's using here to complain is really just to kind of mutter underneath your breath. Kind of like, you know, when you... Something happens, you just kind of mutter under your breath. That's really what he's using here. And you know who is really good at muttering? 
the Israelites, right? The Israelites were really, really good at muttering. Um, the Bible tells us that they were a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And they repeated this cycle. It's just amazing to me that they would go through this cycle of rebelling against God and then reaping the consequences of that rebellion and then crying out to God for help and then Him delivering them. And then that lasted for a while. And then they rebelled against God again. It just became this whole cycle. And you read through it in Judges and you're like, come on. Like, can't you guys get with the program? Like, why does this keep happening? But that's you and me too. That's all of us. We rebel. We reap the consequences. God is faithful and just to forgive us. And we think about that goodness for a while. And then over time, we tend to forget that goodness. And we go through these same problems. We too soon forget his goodness and get focused on problems. And our attitude of gratitude starts to wane. The Hebrew people had just left Egypt with so much fanfare. They had left, and the people were so excited to get rid of the Hebrews that they literally plundered them as they were leaving Egypt. They basically said, we were giving you all this stuff. Just leave. Get out of here. And they literally plundered the Egyptians as they were leaving. And you know the story. They were having a huge celebration until they got to the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh and his guys are coming at them, and they lose all of that celebration. They start panicking, saying, we never should have left. We should have stayed there. And then God parts the waters. They walk across to the other side. And then Pharaoh's men start coming after them. And they panic again until the waters collapse on them, and they all drown. And they start to have another party. And Miriam sings a song, and they have a charismatic service right there on the other side. She's got a tambourine. <laughs> I grew up in a church. Charismatic service. Everybody had a tambourine. There was always a tambourine somewhere in the worship. And so they celebrated. They were excited about that. And that lasted for a couple days until they started to grumble about not having enough water. And then God gave them water. And that lasted for a couple days. He gave them manna. He gave them something to eat. All they had to do was go outside every day and scoop it up. And they started to complain about that. And they said, we wanted meat to eat. God said, okay, you guys want meat? And he sent so much quail falling from the sky, but it says the one who was the least successful picked up 60 bushels of quail. That's a lot of meat. So he gave, it, he gave them what they wanted, and while they were eating the meat that they so desperately wanted, it says while the meat was still in their mouths, a plague broke out in the camp because of their ungratefulness. And that place where a bunch of people died was, was renamed Kibroth which basically means graves of craving. So every time they went by there and they said the name of that place, that is the place where the graves of craving lie. Um, so be careful what you wish for. Discontent is very contagious and it spreads and there are consequences to it that we don't get to choose. Believers are to be characterized by gratitude and thankfulness. And those two things we choose to be content, as Paul would say, choose to be grateful, are going to combat complaining and disputing. So grumbling is about our attitudes. Disputing is about our actions. Um, it's about not about muttering underneath our breath. It's about saying it out loud. It's about the things that we do. Um, disputing or criticizing or arguing over people's opinions. Uh, we live in the most opinionated culture in the world. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, because there are way more platforms than ever before for people to get on and be opinionated about. So whether or not people want to hear our opinion, we're going to let them know what it is because we have a platform to tell people about it. And so we argue and we dispute. You might be saying, okay, Nathan, we understand it. We get it. Like arguing and disputing and complaining. We know those things are bad. What's the point? 
Here's the point. The world is watching. The world's watching. As believers, how are we acting? What are our attitudes? What do our actions look like? Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. Don't be complaining and arguing because it is going to damage your witness. And all it says to the world when we complain, when we dispute, when we fight amongst ourselves, and the church has never been more divided than it is today, all it says to the world is that we don't trust the God that we say we believe in. That's all it says. <clears throat> Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations chapter 3, he writes 37 through 39, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? God's in control. What right do we have as sinful people in light of our sin to complain, to dispute, to argue? So it's essentially saying, I don't deserve this, is what we're saying. When we complain and when we dispute, we're saying, I don't deserve this. But thank God that we don't get what we deserve. Right? Thank God we don't get what we deserve. We should be blown away with thankfulness because we don't get what we deserve. So it's emotional grumbling, it's intellectual disputing, it's our attitudes in our actions. We have to have the right attitude and the right actions so that, verse 15, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now the word crooked, a word that you'll probably recognize, is the word scolios which is where we get the word scoliosis from. Uh, basically, it's anything that is a deviation from God's norm. Anything that's a deviation from that. It's bent. It's not the way it's designed to be. And as a result, it's not bearing the weight and it's deteriorating. We are surrounded by a crooked generation that is deteriorating because it cannot bear up under the load of its sin. So if crooked is a static condition, then perverse is an active and dynamic condition. Um, it is, crookedness is sinful, per perverse is just chasing after that sin intentionally. Um, not only has it deviated from God's norm, but it is intentionally going after that sin. Um, and it's destroying itself. If you look in the Old Testament, we read about cultures, entire people groups that are destroyed. Where God said, you need to wipe these people out. And it seems like a very barbarous thing, right? Just to wipe out an entire group of people. When in reality, it was an act of mercy because these people were destroying themselves. They were slowly destroying themselves with their perversity. <clears throat> it used to be that you had to go seek out perverse things. Like, you used to have to go intentionally seek them out. Now, in our day, it gets shoved in your face quite a bit. You don't even have to go looking for it. We're witnesses to it every single day. The world is getting darker. Alicia and I were sitting around and talking about it earlier this week. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to look for it. We have um, COVID. We have vaccines. We have masks. We have China trying to wipe out a people group. We have Iran enriching, you know, uranium. And from what they say, they are weeks away from developing nuclear weapons. Not months. Not years. But weeks away. We have North Korea firing off bottle rockets. We have churches and villages, Christian villages, and in Africa being bombed, in Afghanistan, uh, all of this stuff, the world is getting darker. Uh, now that's always been the case, but it is being displayed more boldly in our time than ever before. It's being flaunted, really. And now the people that are coming to power in our country are propagating that perversity and holding it up and celebrating it. Uh, 
Um, and that is not the majority of the people in our country, but they're the ones with the microphone. And unfortunately, unfortunately the culture is dancing along to the tune that they're playing. So they have the microphone, uh, but it is not the majority. Um, not, now, even though it seems bolder, it's certainly not new. Obviously, the Church of Philippi was dealing with a lot of pagan practices, uh, very deeply pagan. This is the group that beat up Paul, put him in prison, and then ran him out of town. So this is what they're living with. They have to actually live there around these people and walk out the faith that they say they believe. Um, and we might expect that in a Gentile country, right, a pagan place, but Jesus actually uses the same words with the Pharisees of his day. In Matthew 17, as well as in Luke, time, Luke 9, he tells the Jews of his day, he says, you are an unbelieving and perverse generation. They had deviated from the truth. So Jesus says it, Paul says it, Jesus says it, and we go even further back to Isaiah chapter 59. And he says, their feet run to evil. He's talking about the people. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are there in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. There's no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. People cannot know peace because they reject the truth. People have a hard time finding truth in our society today because they reject the truth. It's often surprising to us. I was talking to one of my friends the other day. And he said, I just, I cringe when I watch people. I cannot watch TV shows or movies where people are making terrible decisions and it's going to destroy them. And we see this in real life. And we wonder, how can you act that way? How can you support a lifestyle? How can you live in a lifestyle that is so destructive that is going to ultimately destroy you? But it shouldn't surprise us because this is what life is like without Jesus. It's a destructive life without him. And now, for decades, our culture has done its best to try to eliminate God and insulate itself from Jesus and the gospel. Now we're reaping the consequences of that uh, in a society that wants nothing to do with God. And in fact, they love the darkness. In John 3.18, Jesus tells us plainly, he said, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world because people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is why Paul tells the church in his next few words, be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. When Jesus was in the world, he said, I am the light of the world, is what he said when he was here. And they knew he was returning back to the Father, and he turned to his disciples, and he said, you are the light of the world. You are now the light of the world. You and me are the lights of the world. I don't know about you guys, but there are times where I get really annoyed being around people who are living in the darkness. I don't always want to be around people that are in the darkness. I love the church. I love the family of God, but I don't always want to be around the darkness. But Jesus prayed, and we've touched on this the last couple Sundays, John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prayed, God, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but I pray that you would keep them from the evil and that you would sanctify them in the truth. We are to be those that are in the world and also sanctified, set apart in the truth. When Jesus looked on the crowds, the crowds were coming out and they were following him and he would walk through places and see them. 
So they were sheep, like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. Um, when we get annoyed with people, we lose our compassion. Um, and it's normally because we're not looking at people with an eternal mindset. We're not looking at them as if they are eternal souls. Uh, there was an evangelist who was having a meeting in his office with a few other gentlemen. And, uh, they were talking about things, and he looked out his window, and he said, I want you guys to look out the window and tell me what you see. And so these group of guys, they went over to the window, and they said, well, we see a park, and we see people over there, you know, in the park. And he said, see, that's, that's the problem. He said, I see souls that are damned to eternity in hell if they don't come to know Jesus. He said, you see people, I see souls that are going to be lost if they don't come to know Jesus. And truthfully, we need to start looking at people as if they are eternal souls, because they are. That's the reason why we need to shine. And it should change our viewpoint and our actions toward the lost people. When we're thankful for what the Lord has done for us, we stop complaining. And it restores our compassion towards people, which makes us want to shine as lights in the world. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.8, he says, listen, at one time you were darkness. You were in darkness. But now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of light. That should make us very grateful. We are not in the darkness anymore. We are children of light. Our position is quite clear. You were with us when we went through the book of Galatians. We are God's children. We are inheritors of God's grace. And as obedient children, we can have a dramatic impact on the world that we live in if we choose to shine. And the conditions for us to shine, gang, have never been better. The darker it gets, the brighter we shine. Um, about 25 years ago, when I went ring shopping for Alicia, when we were going to get engaged, I went to a jeweler. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and the guy brought out some diamonds, and he laid them out there on the table. And I couldn't tell the difference between any of them. But then he got out a black cloth, and he laid the diamonds out on the black cloth. And when you laid them out there on that darkness, you could see how much they shine. Um, and then what they would do is they would actually, I was a poor college kid, so they took them and put them underneath the microscope. <laughs> and when you put them underneath the microscope, it was interesting because some of them had small flaws. Some of them looked like they'd been hit with a hammer, honestly. They were broken. But you couldn't tell that when they were out and you placed them on the black cloth. They shone like diamonds. And that's all of us. Some people think we have it all together. Others are quite broken by life. But as Jesus followers, as his kids, we have the opportunity to shine in the darkness because of who's inside of us. It doesn't do us, it doesn't do us any good to shine amongst each other. Really. I enjoy the body, but if I go outside with a flashlight and walk down the sidewalk or the, the sidewalk with a flashlight, I'm gonna get some weird looks. I love being around God's people, but we're not called just to shine amongst each other. In Matthew 5, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he tells his people, he said, let your, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's no such thing as secret discipleship, okay? That's not what we were called to. There's no secret disciples. Um, I had, this is Friday, two days ago, I had a client into the TV station. We were going to do a commercial meeting. We are going to do a commercial, uh, and we were talking about it. And we were walking down the hall, and we're wearing our masks, and he asked me, this gal, the producer, she sits in this dark room all day long, and he whispers to me, he's like, is she a leader? I'm like, what kind of question is that? Is she a leader? I'm like, I don't know. 
Well, that's not what he said. I couldn't tell because of the mask, but the question was, is she a believer? Now, he's a Christian. He knows I'm a Christian. We're walking in, and I'm getting ready to sit down, and he goes, do you believe in God? She's like, yeah, I believe in God. He's like, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm like, I'm barely sitting down. I'm like, this is going to be an interesting conversation. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure she's not saved. But he just asked the question, and it was a great conversation starter, obviously. And I just remember thinking, here we are in this dark room. And he just lights up the room with the question, do you believe in God and that Jesus is the Son of God? And we had this interesting, she was rather awkward, conversation about Jesus. And now she's going to be thinking about that question because he had... He had the knowledge that there are no secret disciples. I'm just going to ask the question because he said, I think we're on this verge of something big is what he was talking about. He said, every time we do something big, Satan comes at us and he attacks us. And it was just interesting to watch her reaction as he is essentially witnessing to her about what's going on in his life. We are to shine in the darkness. Why? We're to shine in the darkness because our time is short. The time is short here, okay? Uh, we live in a world where people are wandering around in the darkness. Uh, the light exposes the darkness, but it also leads people out of it. It also provides a path and a way for people to get out of it. We have a chance to be those who show the way. And I wonder sometimes if we get too focused on exposing things and not enough focus on showing the way, on lighting up a path for people to come out of the darkness. I think about the woman who was brought to Jesus that had been caught in the act of adultery, and they throw her down in front of Jesus, and, and Jesus says, listen, the person who has no sin can throw the first stone. And they all left. And Jesus said, where are your accusers? And she said, oh, none accuse me. He says, well, neither do I accuse you, but go and sin no more. I'm giving you the light. Leave that lifestyle, that destructive lifestyle. You need to leave it. You need to walk in the light. Don't walk in the darkness. We live in dark times, and we are to shine in lights in the darkness because we know that Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, Jesus, in the uh, end of Revelation, he says, I come quickly. I'm coming back soon. And people say, yeah, but Nathan, you know, we've been hearing that for 2,000 years. Ever since he ascended, people have been saying that Jesus is coming back soon. Um, in 2 Peter 3.8, he says, Peter says, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And a lot of times we take that to mean that God is outside of time. Time is relative to God. And that is true. But what if we took that literally? Like, if a day is a thousand years, then... Year one to year 1,000, that's one day. 1,001 to 2,000, that's two days. We're living in day three, guys. We're living in day three. He's coming back soon. Um, there is a significant number in the Bible. All these numbers are significant. I'm a big numbers guy. I'm a big name guy. Number three is significant in the Bible. On the third day, Jesus rose. He came back. From the grave he's coming back and whether it's tomorrow whether it's 500 years from now we are to be those that glow in the darkness because we don't know when he's coming back we're supposed to be those who glow while we're here uh, jesus told a parable in matthew 25 it's very sobering and he likens his return to a bridegroom who will come back to get his bride 
and nobody knows when that hour is going to be. See, what would happen when a man would uh, propose to a woman when they would be arranged to be married? He would leave and he would go prepare a place at his father's house and he would start preparing a place for them to live. And nobody knew when he was going to come back, but eventually when the project was completed, and I don't know if there were whispers or if it was just the time when the project was going to be completed, people were getting ready. They were anticipating the groom coming back. And what would happen once it was done is the, the best man would come through the town and he would start announcing the bridegroom is coming. And then people would get ready and they would rush because at that time, all the people that had been invited, they knew the season, they knew the times, but they didn't know the actual day when he was coming. And so they would let them know and everybody would get ready. And part of the story is about the 10 versus the 10 women that had the oil. And five of them were prepared. They had extra oil with them and five didn't. And as soon as the guy comes through and says the bridegroom is coming, they had been burning their lamps all night because they wanted to be ready when he came, but they were all out of oil. The ones who had the extra oil, they were able to fill them up and go to the wedding feasts. And oil in the Bible is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 1.4 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation and the guarantee of our inheritance. Then right in the middle of the night, when the, when the cry goes out and the bridegroom is here, the five that don't have oil beg the ones that do for extra oil. They say, we don't have enough. You need to go to the marketplace and get oil for yourselves. Well, I don't know how easy it's going to be for them to find oil in the middle of the night in the marketplace. In fact, it ain't going to happen. But the ones that had the extra oil, the ones that had the seal of salvation, the guarantee of the inheritance were let in. Once the doors were shut to the wedding feast, they didn't get opened again. So kind of a very sobering, sad situation. When we hear that, that should shake us up and wake us up. They missed out on the bridegroom's return. Now, there have always been questions about Christ's return, but it doesn't really matter when, because we're not going to know the date. We're just supposed to be ready, and we're supposed to glow while we're here. Uh, Hebrews 9.28 tells us that Christ was offered once for the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin. He already dealt with sin the first time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Uh, I was listening to a speaker, actually, Alicia, and I watched him last night. Uh, I think his name was... Amir Safadi, so I'm going to have to post the video because it was a fantastic video. Uh, he was speaking, answering the question, are we in the tribulation right now? And Alicia told me that, and I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> All right, we'll watch it. But it's actually one of the best, concise messages that I've heard on the end time, so I'm going to share it. We are not currently in the tribulation. Not at all. Times are bad. Times are dark. But we are not in the tribulation. The church... The real church will not go through the tribulation. We're going to be out of here. Um, now, there are three positions on it. I don't know if you guys are probably familiar with that. But there's pre-tribulation, and there's mid-tribulation, and there's post-tribulation. They'll bring this up because I think it's probably important that you guys know, as your pastor, where he stands on it. And I am a firm believer that we are not going to be here when the tribulation happens. Um, I believe that we are going to be raptured out of this world before that begins. Jesus left this earth. When he left this earth, the church has been under persecution and we are going through troubles and trials, but not tribulation. It is going to be beyond anything that we could ever think or imagine when that happens. Uh, we felt persecution globally, not necessarily here in America, but it's been under attack ever since he left. 
Uh, churches do entire series on the rapture and end time, so I'm not trying to do that right now. But um, just one small example of why I believe this uh, is, is in Genesis 19, and it talks about God's rescuing of Lot. God is you know, talking to Abraham about what he's going to do, and he's going down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begs with him and says, listen, what if, he starts bartering with God, what if there are 50 righteous in the city? Will you destroy it? God says, I won't destroy it for 50. He starts going all the way down, starts negotiating with God, gets down to 10. And he says, for 10, I won't destroy it. Abraham's like, great. I know Lot's there. Hopefully there's a couple more who won't destroy the city. But there's not even 10. Not even ten righteous between these two cities. And the angels go down there and they appear to Lot, right? And he brings them into his house. The place is so evil. The men of the city want them to bring them out. Because they bring them out and want to know them. And they don't want to have coffee with them. It's an evil, evil city. And it says that they were struck blind. And they wore themselves out in their blindness searching for the door. That's how sinful and evil these people were. And there, the angels say, listen, we got to get out of here. We need to leave now. And Lot and his family are kind of, you know, poking around. And I don't know what I should bring or what I should pack. And they, Lot says, we got to get out of here. And, this, you know, the people thought that he was just kind of joking. Until at last, they had had it. And the angels grabbed them physically and dragged them out of the city. Before the city is destroyed, they are grabbed out of Sodom. And the believers, the church, before God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world, the church is going to be grabbed out before it comes down. I mean, if you think about it, there weren't even ten righteous. When I think about America, and I think about God's judgment on America, um, which hasn't come fully yet, obviously, I believe it is because the righteous that live in the land. There are a lot of righteous here. We will face God's judgment eventually. Um, but I think one of the reasons why we haven't experienced is because of the righteous that live here. Um, if you think about it, and I heard somebody use an example. If my house had termites and, <laughs> and it was going to be fumigated, they put the big bag over the house and it was going to be fumigated. It doesn't matter how my kids had acted that day. It doesn't matter if they had made their room or if they had talked back, whatever it was, I would make sure that before the poison went in, that they were taken out, right? I would make sure of that. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the, Th the letter of the Thessalonians, both the first one and the second one, talk about end times and raptures, and um, he's trying to make sure that they understand that correctly. We read about the rapture of the church, and at the end of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, he says, encourage one another with these words. Now, can you imagine if Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, you're going to have trouble from your flesh. You're going to have trouble from Satan. And you're going to have trouble from me. That doesn't sound very encouraging. How are we supposed to encourage one another with these words if he says he's going to cause tribulation in the church? So, just another reason why I'm a firm believer that we're going to be out of here. But we're supposed to be lights in the world while we're here. And there are two ways we can shine. Uh, I was thinking about this. I have these at home. We can shine like a lamp. We can put out a soft glow. We can lead people out of the darkness. Or we can do one of these. <laughs> we can shine it in people's eyes, right? How do you like your sin? You know you're going to hell. 
Showing that kind of light in people's faces is probably not going to get the job done. Not the way to use our light, but to try to expose everything, but to lead people to the light. And once they see the light, and those things were exposed, the Holy Spirit reveals those things to them. They will walk out of the darkness. Okay, we are to shine, verse 16, show that holding fast to the word of life. This phrase is interesting because some translations say holding fast to the word of life. Other translations say holding out the word of life. And I think that that translation is probably more appropriate here when we're talking about shining as lights in the midst of a dark world, we are to hold out the word of life. Seems to make more sense um, in a crooked and perverse generation. Yes, we're to hold fast to the word, but we're also to hold it out. Um, the challenge for us sometimes is, <laughs> myself included, we don't have the Bible memorized. So we don't always know where to turn and what to look up when we're going through different times. We're supposed to hold out the word. How are we supposed to do that? I loved Julie's testimony last week. It was fantastic. I love testimonies because they talk about, they show us what God's doing and how he's moving and encouraging the lives of believers and how Mercedes had a word and she had given it. She was holding, because she had held fast to the word, she was able to hold it out to Julie so that she could hold on to it. And then she held it out here at church. And I just thought that was a fantastic testimony. And so to that end, I actually, that book of promises, right? I actually bought a bunch of them. They're in the back. They're, they're amazing. They're amazing. So they're in the back. They're in the box. Grab one before you guys leave. Uh, breaks out, you know, by different topics. Whatever you're going through, you have an opportunity to turn to that place. There's going to be scripture that you can pray, that you can, you know, tell, that you can remind yourself of the promises of God where we're going and what we're going through. So those are back there. Do like one per household or grab one. You know, somebody that you know needs one or you think needs one, grab those. That's the reason we got those. We can't hold forth if we're not holding fast. So those are a way that we can hold fast. Hold fast to scripture that we can shine as lights in the darkness holding forth the word. Uh, the Phillips, Jake and Nikki Phillips, for those of you guys, the missionaries that uh, we help support, uh, just got back. They came back for a couple weeks. Uh, they are going to do some very intensive training so that they can go over and better serve the Christians and the churches in Afghanistan. They were helping, and Jake's whole thing is security training and trying to prepare missionaries for when things like this actually happen. So I was a little surprised that he was leaving, but they need to come back so they can get the intensive training that they need so that they can go back and get in there and help the believers. And I would love it if he could come and speak, but I don't know, they're going to be really, really busy. I hope I get a chance to talk to him and hear about the things that God's doing over there. Uh, but you remember that video that I showed of his son, Hunter, and he went he went for a run. He would go for daily runs, which is weird. But people knew that he was a missionary. They knew he was a missionary, and there was this guy there who had a Bible. He'd been reading through it, but he couldn't understand it, and he knew that Hunter was a Christian, and so he stopped him one day and asked him about it. And because Hunter had been holding fast to the truth, he was able to hold out the truth and talk the guy through these scriptures in the Bible and witness to him. He was a great example. We need to be ones that can proclaim the truth. Good doctrine without good character is just as bad as living rightly but being unable to proclaim the truth. We need to be able to do both. The rest of verse 16 says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul has sown into this congregation. He's done everything he can do to provide for them spiritually so that he can be proud of them in the day of Christ. That is, the day that we stand before him, before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And that is not a day where we get judged for sins. I used to think that when I was on like, we're going to stand before Jesus. We're going to get judged for our sins. But he already took the judgment, the punishment for our sins. This is actually where we stand before the judgment seat, a judge as in an athletic contest where we are rewarded for the things that we did while we were here on earth. Uh, the Greek word is bema, the bema seat of Christ. We're to stop complaining and disputing and to shine as lights in this world for the sake of the saints, for the sake of the unbelievers, and then also for their pastor. Paul is saying, I want to be proud of you. I want you to be an eternal source of joy for me. So live in such a way, have your attitudes and actions reflect the gospel so that I can be proud of you. I want to make sure that it sticks. I don't want to labor in vain. Uh, I was look, trying to look up stories of things that had been labored in vain. Right? And so I found this article, the 11 biggest structural failures in history. And in this particular article, the 11 biggest structural failures, two of them happened in Kansas City. <laughs> One of them was the 1981 collapse of the Hyde Regency where the, the walkway had collapsed, killed 114 people. Uh, the anniversary was actually just a couple weeks ago and the news department had done a big special on it. That was one of the biggest, one of the 11. And the other one was Kemper Arena. In 1979, literally a few days before it happened, they had received some incredible engineering architectural award. And then what happened, they, had, they were supposed to have twice as many drains in the roof to drain off the water as they had. They only had half as many as they were supposed to. And they got such a deluge at the time, too much water, and the whole ceiling collapsed. The roof collapsed on it. It was one of the biggest structural failures. It's ugly anyway. I don't know why they didn't knock it down. Um, <laughs> Psalm 127 says, unless God builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless God builds the house. Paul's saying, God's building the house. I don't want to run. I don't want to labor in vain. I want to be proud. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, he says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And John said in his letter, 3 John, only 15 verses long, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That is the crown of the joy. Paul's making a personal appeal to the believers. He's like, I want my work to count. And as, as parents, we feel this, right? Our kids, we want to make sure that all of our parenting, everything that we've poured into our kids sticks. We want it to count. So our words, our lives speak an effective way to demonstrate the gospel. Verse 17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. We're almost done. Paul's confident. He's pretty confident he's going to be released and he's going to be able to see these guys again. But he says, even if I'm not, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, I'm joyful. Even if I don't make it, I'm poured out as a drink offering. Um, whatever the Lord wills. Now, we don't hear much about drink offerings or what they would call libation offerings. Um, and they're usually in parts of the Bible that we skip over, like Numbers and Leviticus and things like that. They get kind of hard to understand, so we tend to skip over them. But the drink offering was to always be part of the burnt offering. So when the burnt offering would happen, two things were always supposed to be present, and it was a grain offering and a drink offering. And most of the time that was grain, a bread, and a wine. Which is interesting if you think about that. Jesus says the elements of the new covenant, of the communion, were bread 
and wine. Every bloody sacrifice was supposed to be accompanied with a drink offering. And so again, we have a picture in the Old Testament of something that was, you know, revealed that actually would happen in the New Testament. Jesus' final sacrifice. Um, one of the sacrifices that a drink offering was to be a part of was the first fruits. When people would bring their tithe, when they would bring their first fruits to the temple and they made that sacrifice, um, the tithe, if you will, was a sacrifice that was symbolic of their works. So it's appropriate here that Paul is using this analogy of a drink offering on the, on the offering of their faith, on the sacrifice of their faith, to describe his work and how it brings him great joy. He also wants the Philippians to have great joy along with him. Um, we can have the worship team come back up and we want to bring the kids back in. Um, I titled this Glowing in the Dark out of all of this, out of Paul's wanting um, them to live rightly so that he can enjoy the fruits of his labor or, you know, not complaining, not disputing, all of those things lead into living as a light in the darkness, glowing in the dark. Um, there's a story in the Old Testament of Moses. And when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. Just his face was glowing when he came down from the mountain. He just spent 40 days up with the Lord. And it was so bright that he put a veil over his face. And so when he would go in, it started, the, the glow started to fade. And he would go in to the tabernacle and spend time with God. He would take the veil off. And then he would put the veil back on because his face would glow again. He would come back out and talk to the people. And so it was this process of living out amongst the people, right? We're in the world. The glow starts to fade. We go back in, we spend time with the Lord, we spend time in prayer, in the Word, and we begin to glow again. Uh, it's interesting because things that glow have to be exposed to the light to continue to glow. If they are put in the darkness, they're not exposed to the light, then they begin to fade over time. We're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Stay in the world. Stay in relationship with the Father so that we can glow in the darkness. With joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty.